Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Boy, September 10th, 2020. We have these Trump Woodward tapes, these revelations from a whistleblower in the Department of Homeland Security. And and out west, the sky has turned into, well, it must be like what's like to be on Mars, this, you know, apocalyptic red as as these massive wildfires continue to rage. And who better to talk about this with than uh, than than Tim Miller? Hey, by the way, good good morning, Tim. Thanks for joining me. Hey, good morning, Charlie. I'm hey. I'm just shocked that I'm getting the top billing over Tom Ridge, former. Well, I was going to mention that we have a double header today because there's so much stuff going on with 53 days to go. Um, first half of the podcast is going to be Tim Miller, and then we're going to be talking with Tom Ridge, two-term governor of Pennsylvania, the first ever Secretary of Homeland Security, and he's got some thoughts. Uh, I'm hoping about what's going on in the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, so for people who are looking for seriousness, you know, they can just fast forward 30 minutes and we can do do that. And uh, he's very, very involved in the whole issue of mail-in voting in this, speaking of apocalypses that are coming our way. Hey, before we get started, um, Tim, you actually live out there in the hellscape of uh, of California. So can you see the sky or is it... Or is it, was, it like end, end time still there? Yeah, we'll see what happens today. And we're taping this at 7.30, so it's still, it's pretty overcast, but that's normal out here in foggy Bay Area. Um, we'll see if it clears up today. Yesterday was bizarre. I mean, you are right. It is not an overstatement at all to say it had surface of Mars vibes here. Um, you know, you walked outside and it was like in one of those movies where they uh, uh, put the screen on where everything is orange, you know, kind of an yeah. orangish red. Um, there were, you know, I, I was on a on a Zoom with Bill Crystal yesterday morning around 1030 and I brought it outside to show him and he's like, so the cars on your street have headlights on still oh. <laughs> at 1030. I mean, it was it was a it's a very strange deal. And, um, you know, it, we uh, we had we couldn't. Like last week, we really couldn't go outside much at all because the air quality was so bad to breathe uh, and kind of smell. It sort of smelled like a campfire everywhere around town. And and that has dissipated, at least for now. So at least the air quality is better. Hopefully, you know, one of these days we can we can get back to our normal 72 degrees and sunny uh, out here uh, before, uh, you know, kind of climate change uh, uh, wrecks our 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 glorious uh, uh you know california um paradise it, it it does feel like one of these sort of cosmic answers to all of those tweets you know sh- showing you know some some antifa rioters in in portland you know saying this is joe biden's america yeah. and then god goes no look at the sky this is donald trump's, trump's america <laughs> big orange. you want know, you don't have to go to social media to see this um, okay. Um, by the way, uh, just a heads up for folks, uh, you are doing a Snapchat video every single week, uh, that people can find on Snapchat. And uh, I, I gotta tell you, I was telling you right before we started this, I think it is absolutely fantastic for Bulwark fans. Uh, if you, uh, if you all have access to, uh, either a teenager, uh, who has Snapchat <laughs> or you can figure out how to do that yourself, you really ought to look this up. So what, what is it called? Yeah, it's, it's called uh, not my party. So if you just swipe left on your Snapchat app and search for not my party, it'll come up and you can subscribe. Or as Charlie said, you can find a teenager in your life or on the street and they'll be able to, you know, pull it up for you in about five seconds. So not my party. And I started this week. I've been, you know, we've done two of them now. 
and um, you know, I think that they were the teen. They were look, hoping that the teens could get kind of a non, um, you know, a Charlie Kirk view of conservatism. And so I've uh, I've spent a lot of time ranting about Donald and Bannon, of course. But I did, you know, on the topic of California today, get to spend a little bit of time talking about the fact that. Um, you know, our leadership out here has decided that the correct response to the fires is that everybody turns off their AC, which has, which has, you know, um, unfortunately, I hate it when they make Fox right, but it has made for a kind of a weird situation out here where, you know, we're surrounded by fire and stranded by a pandemic and, and we're told we can't use our electricity because they've yeah. offlined all the, all the plants and are, you know, trying to rush us to our great solar future. The, the solar energy future, you know, hopefully we can reach it soon, but, you know, when the sky is filled with soot uh it creates some problems yeah we, we've seen the future and it's uh old people really sweating a lot yeah. I, mean, I don't know okay because this is a serious podcast we should really jump right into uh the the revelations by bob by bob woodward this is just an amazing thing it, it does have this watergate vibe i have to i have to admit that the whole you know what did the president know when did he know it what did he do well we now know all of that also the fact that you know what 50 years 40 some years after president nixon is done in by tapes what does donald trump do he makes his own tapes with one of the reporters that brought down the nixon presidency i mean it's like whoa it, it, the, the the dots have 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 uh, have connected so and i, I want to talk about what we learned and, and the significance of this whether and whether the big question would be is this actually going to make a difference this time but I have to tell you, Tim, there's one delicious little aspect of this that I wanted <laughs> to start off with. So the people are wondering, what was Donald Trump thinking? Why would you sit down with Bob Woodward? It never works out well for presidents who sit down with Bob Woodward, right? But the president, of course, is surrounded by brilliant people who are always telling him, you know, what what he ought to do. I, I, I my initial reaction was that it was just his vanity uh, that, you know, he thinks I'm the president of the United States. I can tell my story. I can manipulate Bob Woodward. His first book wasn't that bad. I can handle anything. But 18 interviews, including these tape recorded interviews. Well, now, as the finger pointing, because this turns out to be so disastrous, somebody needs to be thrown under the bus. And the person who's risen to like the you know first in the queue is, of all people, Lindsey Graham. So Tucker Carlson, who is a, of course, an inveterate Trump defender, fluffer, um, goes on in a monologue blaming Lindsey Graham for this idea. Let's just play this. That for repeated interviews with Bob Woodward. Why in the world would he do that? Well, tonight, from a source who knows the answer to that mystery, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. <laughs> it was Lindsey Graham who helped convince Donald Trump to talk to Bob Woodward. Lindsey Graham brokered that meeting. Lindsey Graham even sat in on the first interview between Bob Woodward and the president. How'd that turn out? <laughs> now, remember, Lindsey Graham is supposed to be a Republican. So why would he do something like that? You'd have to ask him. Why? But keep in mind that Lindsey Graham has opposed, passionately opposed, virtually every major policy initiative that Donald Trump articulated when he first ran, from ending illegal immigration to pulling back from pointless wars to maintaining law and order at home. Lindsey Graham was against all of that more than many Democrats. So maybe you already know the answer. <laughs> Lindsey Graham, just... <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, by nice the way... I'll throw a toss in there about how Lindsey Graham doesn't like the immigrants. 
if this lasts for more than four hours, I will seek medical attention. But so Lindsey Graham, who has just been sucking up and sucking up and sucking up and sucking up, once it gets the reminder that that you cannot suck up enough, right? You just can't. There is no level of sycophancy that is going to get you a pass if they decide they're they're coming for you. But I think the hilarious thing is that the focus here is not that the president of the United States basically crapped the bed, right? <laughs> it, it is that who who lets this guy in to record him crapping the bed? Ah, there's so many layers to this, Charlie. Um, it's, it's it's like on the one hand, there is just the the kind of Dan Dresner esque like the toddlerization of Trump. Yeah, you know the fact that his biggest fans actually have the have the dimmest view of him. You know, yeah. even like Tucker Carlson, like I, I, Ben Shapiro, one time this always stuck in my head said that his defense of Trump on Ukraine was that he doesn't think that Trump could intend to do anything. Like Trump has such a is so his brain is so broken that he if he has a hamburger in front of him he can't even intend to eat it. He just it just sometimes happens to pop into his mouth. And here's Tucker saying that the president can't even determine whether or not to speak to a famous journalist or not on his own. He needed to be manipulated by that dastardly Lindsey Graham. <laughs> it's just like, how dumb, I mean, how incompetent and dumb is this person that, yeah. they, that, they, that they can't make any decisions on their own? And, um, you know, the next delicious layer to this is that Tucker, and this just shows how corrupted Tucker has become and, and how much of a propaganda uh, outlet this is. Uh, because I want to tell you something. Uh, maybe some of our listeners don't know this, but uh, I put this in. We did a timeline of Trump's failure, the 10 weeks that lost the yeah. coronavirus war a long time ago on the on the bulwark. And you can just click on our COVID page and read it. But one entry really stuck out to me as something that I wanted to make sure people knew. On March 7th, a month after these the first Woodward tapes where Trump says that he knows that the virus is worse than the flu, Tucker flew to Mor-a-Lago. Yeah, to meet with Trump to tell him that that he his sources say that that this is actually very serious, much more serious than China has let on, um, and and that he was disturbed by the fact that Trump wasn't taking this seriously enough, and it was going to cost him the election. So so an ostensible news commentator went to give the president this advice a month later. I mean, so so if anybody should know the fa- how bad Trump bungled this, it's Tucker because Tucker believes it or not, actually took this seriously and started covering the virus as early as February. Maybe it was because it was, you know, allowed him to demagogue about the Chinese, but for whatever the intentions were, he actually got it right. And he knew he got it right. And he knew Trump got it wrong. And he flew there to beg him to take it seriously. And now these tapes come out that 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 prove that Tucker was right all along and Trump was wrong all along. But rather than take a victory lap and say, I told you, you know, that that we needed to take this more seriously. You know, this was obvious from the start to to those of us who were watching the show. Rather than take the victory lap, he can't do it because he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to offend his audience by 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 explaining how dumb Trump is. So he has to come up this with this preposterous insult where 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 the evil and dastardly Lindsey Graham is at fault. Uh, it's just it is uh, delicious and and maddening at the same time. Okay, now let's just step back here and 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 ask what we've learned that's new and whether it will make a difference. Because we knew that the president was downplaying this. You had that timeline, which is still up at the bulwark, and I strongly urge people to look at that timeline. You can see all the things that he that he that he said. The Washington Post has documented this. New York Times has written about this. So 
what what difference does it actually make that we get this this story from Woodward that he said this on tape? Does it does it actually make any difference to the nothing matters crowd? Um, Well, this is what I wrote about this morning, uh, the LOL Nothing Matters Republicans. Um, And no, it doesn't make any difference to the Nothing Matters crowd. But I I think it it will will potentially make a political difference, uh, one. And and I think it obviously makes a difference with regards to sort of rendering a judgment on Trump's presidency and his handling of this virus. Because, look, I I mean, uh, it just utter incompetence and aloofness is damning of course and that is what we knew but but what these tapes really do show is is a, a conscious recklessness uh, not just mm. an incompetence right i mean look on february 7th in this tape the most damning part for me is on february 7th in this tape trump is talking to woodward about how much worse this is than the flu i think he says five times worse you know based on what they know at the time uh, he's talking about how it's an airborne virus and how that's and why that's dangerous um over a month later Trump is is tweeting, uh, and I believe you've retweeted this a couple times recently, Charlie. Yeah. Um, you know about how this is just like the flu, and how it's not a big deal. And so I think that many of us suspected that he recognized that it was a big deal, and just was downplaying it because he was worried about the stock market and worried about his reelection, and you know worried about his ego and whatever else, worried about the news coverage that day because you know he has the attention span of a gnat. Um, but I, I think that. In a, that that this shows that this is demonstrative proof of that 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 yeah. was the reason why he was doing this. It wasn't just just aloofness, and and I do think that that matters in rendering this judgment. And then I do think that matters with voters because you know, look, his this is undeniable. His numbers have gotten worse over the last six months because of the virus and because of the protests. And this is just another reminder for that percent of soft voters of soft trump folks that that about how bad he screwed this up yeah i have a couple of takes on this i mean you know first of all you know there are tapes not anonymous sources from the deep state remember last week it was all we're not going to believe any of the stuff about the military because uh it's anonymous well when people came forward and agreed well, well we still don't uh you know uh believe that because it's secondhand they're disgruntled etc well this is not anonymous it's not secondhand it's from trump's own m- mouth it, it is right out there. And it is so graphic, as you point out the consciousness of it. I was going to play the tape, but I think people have probably heard it by now. You go through what he said afterwards, as, as, as you point out, you know, so seven days after he tells Bob Woodward that he knows how deadly it is, that he knows it could kill lots of Americans, that, that he knows it's not the flu. He's saying a lot of people think it goes away in April with the heat as the heat comes on. Um, February 24th, coronavirus, very much under control. Stock market starting to look good to me. February 24th. He he admits it right there. Just really quick. He admits the, uh, he not only admits the consciousness, but he admits the reason why, by you know, by, by saying the quiet part loud as he always does on the stock market there. Exactly. So February 26th, when you have 15 people and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be uh, down to close to zero. That's a pretty good job we've done. Next day, it's going to disappear. It's a miracle. It will disappear. And then as late as March 14th, he's saying, you know, we have flu in our country, an average of 36,000 people, 36,000 people a year, 36,000 people. And, you know, that's something we're not talking about. But as of this moment, we've lost 50. And then on March 19th, he admits to Bob Woodward, 
I always wanted to play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. Now, now in terms here, go ahead. He never, he never wants to scare people. He never wants to alarm people, right? Except for American carnage and, you know, thugs on a plane and, you know, Mexican rapists and caravans coming to kill us, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the Marxist apocalypse of the Democrats. He definitely Yeah. Cory Booker is coming for you, white suburban housewives, but he didn't want to. What he really meant, though, right, because we have to Trump's playing here, is he didn't want to panic the stock market because really that's what right. it came down to. He wasn't going to prepare the country for what they needed to do to, to prevent hundreds of thousands of Americans to die because he didn't want to spook the stock market. Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, who cares about this? Like, you know, again, it's just the president's words. His actions don't matter. You know, actions are what matter. LOL, nothing matters. Um, but 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 here's the thing. This was an area where where actually I, I know this this comes as a shock to our friends in the anti-anti-Trump crowd. Like presidential words matter and leadership's leadership does matter in, in a situation such as this where 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 he has the ability to shape behavior. Right. And, and, and even a, and so for him, we see that it was, you know, six weeks between when he knew that this was serious and when, you know, his fabled first pivot. Um, and then obviously he pivoted back and pivoted back to irresponsibility again, you know, uh, uh, daily and weekly um, all the way up to our present. But 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 if you, if you began on February 7th, you know, acting response, you know, in, in encouraging people to start thinking seriously about social distancing, about getting together in, in, in large groups. Uh, if, if he had moved more quickly to create a, a testing regime to, to, you know, address the PPE to, to make sure that hospitals were prepared. I mean, there was a lot of time for like wasted uh, when, when time was very much of the essence. And so, you know, this, this idea that, yeah, sure. There were plenty of other people to blame, plenty of other people that messed up the CDC with the masks. Cuomo is a disaster, but, but, but this demonstrates that, that like the president knew that people should be acting differently. And even if he could have changed people's behavior, 10%, 20%, I mean, that is, uh, uh, you know, an exponential, yeah. Number of human lives that could have been saved, you know, by this. And so I, I just, you know, it is extremely, extremely damning just on the COVID part. And it shows you how how crazy this administration is and how, how insane we are that, that about all the other stuff that was revealed yesterday that doesn't even get mentioned. So, you know, I, I, I and having lived through um, so many of these, this is the moment, this is it. Um, having lived through Access Hollywood, remember uh, October 7th, 2016, when everybody thought the campaign was over. And Reince Priebus was saying you need to drop out of the race and everything. Now, by the way, he's saying that the president should go on the attack. So we we, we know this nothing matters culture. But but I but I, I do agree with you that this 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 might make a difference. I mean, first of all, because we're close to 50 days away from the election. And look, this isn't going to shake Trump's base. We know that. Right. This is and this is not going to really make that much of a difference to the anti anti Trumpers. But. But what this does is these tapes do shift the focus of the campaign back from this law and order issue, which is where Trump wanted. He had changed the subject of the campaign from his failures on coronavirus, which he knew was toxic, to the cities are burning and we needed, you know, these radical Marxists are going to kill us all if we don't do something about. Well, now the focus is back on COVID-19 and it's back on COVID-19 a week before we're going to hit that grim milestone of 200,000 American deaths. And I do think that that's going to be a moment. And now when this hits, 
There's no way that this story doesn't, you know, become part of that context, right? I mean, so this that yeah, this goes to JBL's point that he keeps making. Yeah. He's behind. Trump's behind. He needs right. good news cycles, you know. And and so this is, and I, I wrote about this today, but the, yep. uh, there's just this. There, there is this head in the sand you see on the from from a lot of people in the commentariat that like this thing that the, none of these things matter because everybody's um, uh, views are so uh, uh, deep seated about Trump and it's true that many 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 people have already made rendered a judgment on Trump but but there is an important demographic of people that have it and and if you look at the data you see between basically six and nine or ten percent of Trump's voters from last time are saying that they're moving over to Biden. If you looked at the data from 2016, about 15% of Trump's voters said that they had an unfavorable view of him. They just hated Hillary more. So, so look, that is an like an absolutely massive swing demographic. The difference between Biden getting 5% of Trump voters last time and 10% is the difference between a very narrow, nail-biting election uh, you know, election college long night and the difference between Joe Biden winning in a Ronald Reagan level landslide. So, so yeah, those people that is, they are persuadable and, and on COVID they are already, already have their doubts about Trump. They've been giving him a pass for the most part, because, you know, this is a pandemic who could have predicted it all the countries are bad. More information coming to light, including tapes that, 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 that undermine that, that argument that, that make them have second thoughts about whether actually it's true that that, that this was you know um, a, a kind of black swan that couldn't have been resolved you know, c- can move some of these voters and if, if even if it doesn't move anybody like like you're saying it, it prevents what Trump that needs is news cycles to help gain some of them back because right now he's losing. Yeah, no, I, I actually, uh, in my newsletter, I, I put uh, Matthew Dowd's tweet in, you know, making the same point. You know, many in the media keep missing the point. It is not whether new information will cause Trump to drop below 42%. It's about whether new information will prevent Trump from growing his support enough to win. And that's the key. You know, in Wisconsin, you know, he may be four or five points behind, but he's consistently, he's at 43, 43, 43, 43%. Yeah. He's not going to win a state like Wisconsin unless he can get to 40 from 43 to about 47 percent this is not going to make it easier for him to do that it makes it much tougher because this is the one issue that he consistently polls you know really badly on i think he's got a 37 percent approval rating so here's the thing that's fascinating because trump is trump um and, and, we, and, and we know that and i don't know if there's anything more that we can actually learn about trump but i'm constantly fascinated by his enablers his supporters and his defenders so as of this morning what or yesterday afternoon as well what have the anti anti trumpers settled into a, a a comfortable defensive crouch yet i mean they have they figured out how they're going to spin this i saw that ben shapiro was basically going but 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 biden or pelosi also downplayed this at some point which is actually sort of in, incorrect but but is, is is that what it's going to be is it just going to strategic silence they'll take the deep breath and then they'll I don't know. Find or some- nothing to see here. We already knew this. I mean, that's the Federalist Crouch. Is this? Okay. Is Mal- Mal- you know, because here's the thing: Trump is, is I'm verbal diarrhea. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look, Trump is verbal diarrhea, right? So if you it go through matter. the fact that he had, you know, he had whatever 30, 40 press conferences, you can find one sentence from all these press conferences that's like, see, look at this one sentence where he said he knew it was worse than the flu, right? Like, and and so so look, I I just think that they are, you know, people. 
they've already rendered the judgment that they're going to need to be for Trump. And so they'll just backfill it. So yeah, it'll be the Nancy Pelosi in Chinatown. It's all, it's all BS. But here's the interesting thing for me, Charlie, is uh, while those, those people are enraging, uh, they're a little bit less um, of a, of an anthropological curiosity for me as the people who are in there, you know, uh, and, and who, who still won't, won't just speak the truth about the president in the way that we've seen from, you know, some Miles Taylor, Elizabeth Newman and some of these folks, because this was under, you know, because this is a little bit dog bites man at this point, it was undercovered yesterday, but, but I just want to read Dan, Dan Coates, a couple of things. Dan Coates said to Bob Woodward that Trump is dangerous, unfit. He thinks he might be compromised by Putin still. He doesn't understand why Trump, some of Trump's actions, uh, he's and then and then Fauci said he's rudderless and has the attention span that is a minus number. I, I mean, how, like this is astonishing. Well, and Mattis, and you, what 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 James Mattis told Coates, the president has no moral compass. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this oh, is yeah. like. Can you right. imagine another presidency? I mean, it's totally unimaginable that that, that, a ca- that cabinet level officials would say that they think that the president is dangerous, unfit, no moral compass, compromised by Putin. Like how how can you believe that? I mean, this is just it's it's supernova Olympic level compartmentalization to think that you believe that the president is dangerous and unfit and compromised by our enemies and has without a moral compass and has no attention span. And then to think, well, but you know, he's probably better than the other guy after all, you know, socialism or whatever. I, I, I mean, I, it's yeah. Marxism. I mean, that is the, that is the thing that I think that we will need to have teams of, of psychiatrists studying for years and years to come. I, you, know, you you wrote about Miles Taylor, Miles Taylor being one of the first of the high ranking officials in the Department of Homeland Security to break ranks. And he did the ad for Republican voters against Trump. And then you did a piece about him for the Bulwark. And then he was yeah. on the Bulwark podcast and he predicted that there would be more. So and and, and he was right because you have Elizabeth Newman who, who, who came out and now you have this new whistleblower. Uh, coming out saying that they had told yep. him to suppress the information about yeah, Russian disinformation to and um, white supremacy and, and white supremacy, so so that they could then cook up the that Antifa is a real threat. So uh, essentially, they, they wanted to use this to frame. I mean, look, the, the 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 narrative that Trump has been pushing up until yesterday, of course, is that that uh, this you know major threat to America came from Antifa and. Um, kind of, you know, wink at the white supremacists. And now we're getting a rather, you know, graphic view of, of what was going on. So we do seem to be having a moment. If you put together the Atlantic article and you put together the whistleblower and things like we're seeing in the, in the Woodward book, it, it does feel like there's a move right now where people who have not spoken out are coming forward and it feels like there's going to be more. Do you have that sense? I hope so. Yeah, I, hope so. I, I, I don't. I, I'm. I feel a little bit like Lucy with the football yeah, on this. So we you all know, feel but, that way. Because, like, I, I, you know, Miles was tweeting yesterday something about this. It's like this was, you know, everybody that worked in the White House that is a person of conscience or something already knew all this, and this is what they all think about him. Referring to the coats and Mattis quotes, and it's like, well, then, okay, where are they? Like, I mean, how can you how can you in good conscience leave this guy in office without saying, or, you know, risk leaving him in office for four more years without saying your piece if you believe this? I mean, that is for me the extremely 
frustrating part about about all of this um, is that is that yeah it does it is unprecedented it does feel like there's it's a lot it does feel like it's a, there's a moment but at the same time it doesn't feel like it's up to <laughs> that the, the revelations meet the the threat you know or or that the 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 courage yeah. I guess internal courage meets the threat um, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, when it comes to some of these even you know higher level cabinet officials, you know, speaking out, and, and when it comes to you know people like John Kelly's silence after the Atlantic article, and and you know you hear which, which, you is, hear, which is bizarre. I mean, I, I guess I'm a little tired of these retired generals basically saying, "Well, um, it's it's not my job as a retired general to speak out." Except that when you took a political position, when you took a cabinet position you stepped into a different role. So you can't keep hiding behind your, you know, the, the, the general issue for why you're not speaking out. But I guess I am struck by the number of people that are at the, at the moment. And, yeah. you know, if, if in fact we go back to the, there's a little bit more than 50 days until the election, if every week there is another revelation, that will be another week where the president is on the defensive and not talking about the things he wants to talk about. Um, you know, this, this is a bad case scenario. Okay. So one little tidbit that got lost, actually a bunch of things that get lost. So many things get lost. Number one, um, how badly outraised the, the Trump campaign was by the Biden campaign, which nobody saw coming. The fact that there's a lot of concern that the Trump campaign may actually be running short of cash, which is, look, you've been involved in campaigns. That is mind boggling. This guy, he had a, what, you know, four year head start. He had a billion dollar war chest. He had the Death Star. And apparently, what did they piss through all the money? Is it, um, I, I, I think this is our friend Brad Parscale's uh, yeah. legacy. Um, you know, they, they, I think, misjudged um, their ability to continue to kind of raise money through outrage clicks online. And, and I think that, and I think that, that, that what really happened here, and I'm sure that there is corruption and waste and, you know, they're somehow, uh, you know, Don Jr. and Eric are getting made whole out of all this uh, on the backside. But I, I, I think that, that, that really the reason that there's the shortfall, because they probably baked all the corrupt stuff in, uh, is, is that they expected Trump to be getting Biden-like, really, online fundraising numbers because Trump and the Republicans dominated the Democrats in online fundraising all through impeachment and post-impeachment early this year. Um, and and that has dried up some. And and I don't, you know, maybe that that is a sign of um, waning enthusiasm among the base. Maybe it's a sign that they've just kind of bled all these folks dry yeah, and there's nothing out. more to get out mm -hmm. of the turnip here. Um, and I think that, um, you know, they had this anticipation that that spigot was never going to turn off. And I think the spigot's slowing down. And so they've put themselves in a tough situation there. I mean, they're not on air right now in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a very important state um, for for Trump. I, you know, if you don't win Pennsylvania and you don't win Michigan, I, I think Michigan's pretty much off the table, really, um, uh, for, for Trump at this point. So if you then add Pennsylvania, the only path to victory for him is to win all of the other swing states and then you then it's a tie and or and then you have to pick up the the uh, the main 
congressional district to win by two electoral votes. I, yeah. I mean, that's that's his, or Minnesota, or you steal Minnesota, the, which I, which doesn't seem likely that you'd win Minnesota and no. lose Pennsylvania. So, so that's so. I mean, Pennsylvania is a critical, critical state for them to be down on on advertising there. Uh, I think shows just how just how serious the problems are. Yeah. The, the the other story was that Trump is not doing any practicing for the debates that are coming up because what could possibly go wrong is, uh, although I agree with JVL that I, I think despite all the hype, they're not going to make a difference either. I mean, unless somebody like throws up on stage or something. I, I so, think that there's a downside. I'll, I'll bed wet for a second on that and okay. take the contrary view. I, I think okay. that there's a downside risk for Biden in the debates. Oh, really? uh, yeah. I mean, we do in the focus groups that I've seen, you know, but there is a soft Biden support among some of this swing demo. Um, and, you know, they, they're a little concerned about his, um, you know, performance. Um, they, they don't know as much about him as you'd think, given how long he's been in Washington. And so, you know, I think in a worst case scenario type debate performance for Biden, where he really is struggling, um, uh, that I think I think it could have an impact. Um, yeah, so okay. so so I, I don't think it's a zero. I mean, I think that um, I think that it, it. Let me just say this: I definitely think it will have a bigger impact than the conventions did, or at least could potentially have a bigger impact than the conventions did. Um. So, do you have any insight into this? Because I I don't actually. Um. Speaking of bedwetting, there's a lot of bedwetting coming out of uh, Florida about the uh the way in which biden is underperforming among hispanic voters look i understand that you know cuban americans are going to vote for republicans that's not breaking breaking news uh but there seems to be some some of the polling shows that that biden is underperforming among non-white voters among people of you know voters of color um is is you have any insight in, into what's going to be the last thing on earth that that i would expect would be that donald trump uh, after you know four years of you know playing the race card bashing immigrants might overperform among hispanics and african americans is is that actually happening or is that just noise uh, it it could be either um trump did do a little bit better than romney um among both Hispanic and black voters, if I'm remembering correctly, um, somebody can fact check me on that, but I'm, I'm almost certain that's the case. So he did, he got a higher, mm-hmm. uh, percentage slightly. I mean, you know, we're talking one or, you know, a couple points, but, um, but that's not nothing. Um, uh, the, the best theory, I, let, let's presume it's true. Um, the, the, the best, the, the best theories of the case that I have on this are one, there's a category of older Hispanic voters for whom the socialism message really does work and that Trump has mm-hmm. been driving that hard and paid. Um, and then secondly, the thing that I think is more concerning for the Democrats long term, I'd be interested, you know, to have somebody on this podcast, like more of a data person, like a David Shore or somebody like that to talk about this. But the divide between the college and the non-college among white voters uh, potentially is something that could leak into voters of color, um, particularly among men. And, hmm. and and you start to see non-college men, you know, who are, you know, culturally kind of more aligned with non-college white men um, than they are with kind of the college-educated latte liberals. Um, and that there are some cultural areas where, um, you know, they, they're, they're, you know, attracted basically to kind of Trump's sort of brashness and devil may care attitude and non non PC attitude. Um, and, and that, that there could be some maybe room for growth 
um, in those demos for Republicans. I, I, I don't think that's, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I don't expect yeah, no, a massive I, no, surge, but like a, yeah. some slight, you know, this sort of the same trends we're seeing among white voters, you start to see a little bit with voters of color. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but that's the best theory I've heard. So if you started playing around with the maps, like the, yeah. the oh, yeah, of seven, course. Yeah. You're, you're playing. So, so as of today, wh- where are you? What's 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 your move? What's, yeah, what's, your, think, ma- what's your map yeah, look like? I think Biden's over 300 electoral votes today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wow. think that he's going to win Arizona, uh, win Michigan for sure. Um, I, I think win Pennsylvania. Um, then he wins. And, yeah, and then he wins. So, so yeah. that that's kind of what I have. I think that right now he's a slight edge in Florida, slight edge in Wisconsin. I think North Carolina is a coin flip. Um, so, I, I think that's where I am today. Uh, that said, I, I, I maybe this is just PTSD, but I do, I do worry about a non-college white voter surge, and and this mm-hmm. is different than what you hear about the the quiet, the shy Trumper. I think that's stupid. Like the right, that's uh, that's just New York liberals who have one yeah. shy Trump friend, and they think that that is what is happening in Wisconsin. That's just not not a real phenomenon in, in, in the swing yeah. states. The Trump but voters I, here are not shy. Exactly. But they I are do very think, much in your face. Yeah. yeah, but I do think that there is a potential risk that that Democratic turnout stays relatively flat, slight increase, that the Democrats do better with these voters who've left Trump. Like I said earlier, this kind of six, eight, you know, five to 10% of voters who left him. Uh, but that is offset by a surge in non-college white voters, which is the biggest demo of, of non-voters. You know, when people hear about non-voters, they often think of like young people and black voters in the city. And in states like, like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, there are a lot of those voters. Yeah, who, and Florida. Who have not voted. Well, that's, of course, the thing about non-voters is they tend not to be voters. So right. I'm a little skeptical about that, but but that's it. In in the scenario of a Trump victory, that's, that's my main concern is, is is that we're all focused on the suburbs, we're focused on urban turnout, and suddenly there's another quarter million uh, votes from rural Wisconsin, you know, non college educated white uh, white voters. Yeah, so that's the thing that worries me. But um, but I I don't think that'll happen in Michigan or Arizona. I I really I feel pretty good about Biden in those states, and so. You know that puts him in a good position. Then he just has to pick up another one. Um, and and the fact like I said the fact that it, that Trump isn't on TV in Pennsylvania, it's amazing. Um, is is amazing. But there are a lot of non college white voters out there in Pennsylvania. So um, you know it's a it's a pretty good nap for Biden right now, but not a slam dunk map. No, I I think uh, I, I think my numbers probably line up with yours pretty closely. So Tim Miller, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. And uh, by the way, if you haven't done this. Check out uh, Tim's new show on Snapchat. It is well worth your time. Not my party. uh, Not your party. Um, And our special, since we're doing a double header, um, our special guest coming up here on the Bulwark podcast, Tom Ridge. Tom Ridge is a former two-term governor of the state of Pennsylvania, and he was the first secretary of the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11, a Vietnam vet who's very, very involved now in an organization called Vote Safe, which is trying to figure out how we are going to go through this election in the midst of a pandemic. And basically, Vote Safe wants all states and territories to be able to ensure that voters have accessible, secure mail-in ballots and safe in-person voting sites, and they want Congress to provide the resources. 
But, well, we are 50, what are we, we're 53 days away from the election. Governor Ridge, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Well, Charlie, thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Well, I want to talk about mail-in voting because this is becoming a very urgent issue right now in real time. But I have to ask you, as the first Secretary of Homeland Security, just to... Uh, your response to some of the stuff that we are reading this morning that everybody is talking about, uh, the whistleblower from high ranking whistleblower from the Department of Homeland Security, who, by the way, is, is about the third high ranking uh, whistleblower from that department to say that uh, he was told to downplay Russian in- interference in the election, downplay the danger posed by white supremacist organizations. Your, your sense of what's going on in your old department? Well, I certainly find the allegations troubling. Um, it, well, they're beyond troubling. Uh, again, I say at the outset, they're allegations. I know some of the individuals against whom these allegations have been made, so I'm not going to be judge and jury. But they're troubling because it, it, it goes against the, the basic norm that those who have an opportunity to inform decision makers in the public sector, in the private sector, but here it's the president of the United States, have a responsibility, a moral, ethical, and a responsibility uh, unvarnished to uh, tell the decision maker, in this instance, the president, uh, the truth. Uh, the absolute truth, what he or she needs to know, not what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, obviously, even in this very partisan environment, uh, uh, without a partisan environment, I suspect there'd be an investigation. And I no, no doubt there'll be one uh, commencing shortly in this regard. I, it's a very troubling set of allegations. And I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And of course, the, we have the Woodward tapes that everybody has been talking about all, all morning. Uh, Bob Woodward sat down for 18 on-the-record interviews with with the president, and we now have the president on tape in February saying this is a deadly thing. This is this is not the regular flu. This will kill a lot more people. And then a few weeks later, saying that his strategy was to downplay this because he didn't want to panic anyone. Your thoughts about that? It's in my mind, it's somewhat ironic, Charlie, that it comes on the heels of this whistleblower allegation. If you're going to hold someone advising the president uh, to the standard that says you speak truth to power, then those who have power, those who have that responsibility, have to be speaking truth to those who have entrusted them with that power, with that responsibility. And it seems to be a, it's beyond a breach of duty. It is, uh, in my mind, just an unconscionable uh, uh, fact, and it is a fact because it is the president making those statements that in spite of that knowledge and in spite of his position, frankly, to uh, to inoculate, which is not necessarily the appropriate word with the, uh, uh, given the, the research we're doing with therapeutics and vaccines, but a good leader would have inoculated his, this country with that knowledge that we view this nationally as a serious, serious public health threat. And we view this nationally as something we need 
to work together on both in the public, private sector to mitigate the impact and the deaths. And we need to adopt these measures, A, B, C. I, when I, I, I know it's symbolic, Charlie, but I have to tell you, particularly after I read, again, I haven't read the, all the transcripts, but after I read the couple of the press accounts, I wondered what the impact would have been if in that February timeframe, maybe January, but February timeframe, the president is made aware of the gravity of the situation and the potential, potential hazard that it has become. If he and the vice president, on each side of them, you had the Republican and Democrat leaders of the House and the Senate, on each side of them, Republican and Democrat chairman of the Republican and the Democrat National, the Governor's Association, and mixed in the crowd, a few businessmen and popular athletes, and they're all wearing masks. Symbolic, yeah, perhaps, uh, but uh, leaders knowing the reality that uh, their community or country may be ravaged uh, by a pandemic. And I was just reading a, split, a book called The Splendid and the livid where Britons were forewarned long in advance of the first bombing and they took precautions and they were united in that effort to defeat Germany. Well, we have a failed leadership here in my judgment because had that information in his hand, I think a true leader would have used it to guide our government, better coordinate the relationships between the federal government, state and locals, and would have probably eliminated quite a bit of the bipartisan or the, the, the partisan politics that has eked this way into the public discussion of the pandemic. Sorry for the long narrative. No, no, no. Actually, it's, 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 I thought, it's, I thought it's long about it. I mean, it's just. Yeah, well, you were in the room making decisions, trying to deal with this, and you understand how the decision making process goes. Well, when I know, you-, you know, there's a lot of books written on leadership, Charlie. But the fact of the matter is that. Strong leaders, in my mind, confident leaders, those who truly care about those who have entrusted them with that responsibility of leadership, would acknowledge that reality, that, that, that information that they've been known, and, and, and based on that knowledge and that information and the potential impact on the country or the group would have done something, would begin to inoculate the very, not going to panic if the president says, this is a challenge that we've got before us in America. We've responded to these challenges before. We've done it here, here. And there are plenty of historical anecdotes where any president could rely upon to, to, to harness the unity of the country uh, and instead, for whatever reason, chose not to. He can explain it. I'm not going to. It's just, uh, I think it's a, it's, the death of any individual is a tragedy. The fact that a lot of people believe, and I'll just uh, take them for what it's worth, thousands of lives could have lost, the loss of life could have been mitigated significantly had this information been shared in a thoughtful and appropriate way with the public and as the basis for asking Americans to do simple things like wear a mask, wash your hands, uh, separate by six feet, those kinds of basic things. I think Americans would have done it. 
And I think the president might have gotten an approval rating near 60%, like some of the governors have gotten. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that book um, by Eric Larson. This book has come up on this podcast before, The, the Splendid and the Vile, about the, the blitz in London. And you think back at the different approaches. You know, Winston Churchill did not rally the, the, the British people by saying, oh, don't worry, they're not coming. It will just vanish. Really, we don't need to do anything about it because the British, I mean, the, the, the Nazis pose no threat to us whatsoever. That is not the message that he had. You know, he, he stood there and he said, I have, you know, nothing to promise you but blood, sweat, tears, and toil. And then the people rallied to that. They, they weren't panicked by it, but they understood the, nece- the necessity. They understood the danger and then the necessity of facing it. So there, there's a very interesting uh, historical, analogy to to all of that. So, Governor Ridge, um, I, I probably should know this, but you were a two-term Republican governor of Pennsylvania. You served in the George W. Bush administration. Do you still consider yourself a Republican? Well, I'm, I'm a uh, Ronald Reagan Republican. I, I view that, let's say that's a Republican Party 1.0. I don't recognize this one. Uh, this is the Republican Party 2.0. I guess that means I'm a traditionalist. And uh, yes, I'm still a registered Republican. I still believe in the fundamentals of uh, the, the party. Uh, we've abandoned them, in my judgment, uh, across the board for the past four years. But uh, I have been and will remain a Republican. I'm just a little concerned about the future of the Republican Party. And depending on what happens in the next election, uh, will be determinative of that. I mean, when you take a look at what has transpired over the past uh, three and a half years, uh, the uh, the fiscal concern about fiscal integrity and deficits has gone out the window, even in a pro-COVID environment. Uh, the notion that uh, we are the Republicans, uh, I mean, I would say this, Republicans and Democrats understood the president is the leader of the free world, but I think we were much more inclined to be supportive of these traditional uh, relationships, multilateral and bilateral relationships, and much more supportive of them uh, as we need to be than this president is. And regardless of what the Democrats thought of it, uh, they've uh, been undermined by by this president. I mean, I don't go on to the long list, uh, but I don't think that this uh, administration has reflected uh, the basic tenets of the party. And one of which I've always felt was, okay, individual accountability and individual responsibility. And for the president during the COVID, basically during the COVID crisis, basically to kind of insulate himself, if you might borrow a phrase, build a wall around himself, (laughs) somehow he's not responsible. Again, a basic tenet flies in the face of what I thought one of the most important principles of the Republican Party, individual accountability and individual responsibility. But it seems he's unwilling to take it for some of the poor decisions or no decisions uh, that have come out of the administration. Well, let's talk about the election because, uh, of course, the president is doing what he does um, I was, won't say best, but uh, he's 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 back tweeting about uh, about mail-in ballots and about the election. Uh, this is a president who has cast great doubt uh, on the legitimacy of the election, on the safety of mail-in voting. And I want to get your sense because this is something that I know that you have been working on very intensely. It's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about this because I am obsessed with the the all the things that can go wrong over the next fifty-three days. I see that you wrote a joint letter with a former governor of, of, of Michigan 
urging states like Pennsylvania uh, to begin counting some of these mail-in votes before Election Day, because otherwise it may take, I, I think your phrase was that this may be an election month. So give me your sense of where we are at right now, how worried you are about uh, this, the first ever pandemic election we've had and uh, the, and, and, and the, and the role that mail-in ballots are going to play. Well, the pandemic has changed uh, how you do your job, how I do mine. It's changed family relationships, business relationships. I mean, let's face it. Once we get through this, we won't be back to norm. There'll be a new norm. We know that. But uh, one of the most important elements of uh, our uh, of our democracy, uh, voting, has been substantially affected by the pandemic. And the best indication is the unprecedented use of absentee ballots during the primary season. You mentioned Pennsylvania. We had historically had five or six percent voting absentee in the primaries. This time we had up to 50 percent. Hmm. And, and, and you know, and I know, uh, and most thoughtful people will know that absentee ballots themselves do not provide any political advantage to either party or to any candidate. They just don't. The benefit of the absentee balloting inures to the candidate or the party that identifies those voters who need an absentee ballot to reflect their choice. And what Jennifer Granholm and I have been doing for the past couple months, and it is a bipartisan effort because election security and counting votes and make and that sanctity of the election isn't a political issue. It must be bipartisan or perhaps even apolitical. But we basically have said that we need safe and secure in ballot, in-person balloting opportunities as well as safe and secure absentee ballot opportunities. And it's ironic, if not hypocritical, that the president who has and continues to vote absentee, by the way, this time he will vote absentee in Florida, would be undermining this most fundamental process in the institutions of government in our democracy, the election, by proclaiming more than once that he's certain he could win, and the only way he could lose would be fraud, fraudulent abuse of absentee ballot, which flies in the face of 40 years of history and investigation, even under the careful eye and data analysis of a conservative think tank called the Heritage Foundation. It also flies in the face of the analysis of a highly respected conservative Republican lawyer, Ben Ginsburg, who I know marginally, who enormous, for whom I have enormous respect, who has represented the party, presidential candidates, et cetera, et cetera, since the 1980s, who basically said in a Wall Street, and I think it was in a Washington Post editorial uh, yesterday, that the allegations of fraud, if I might uh, give you the cliff note version, the allegation of fraud is in of itself a fraud. It's not going to happen. And that's why Jennifer, notwithstanding that, Jennifer Granholm and I just want to make sure that Americans, because of the pandemic, are given options, one of which is the absentee ballot. And by the way, Florida starts counting, I think, 22 days ahead. Arizona, which is, which is also a swing state, 80% of those folks out there vote absentee. So Mr. President, um, I, I frankly think what he's done 
is uh, close to be abiding as un-American as anything a president has done to undermine the legitimacy and the trustworthiness of uh, this sacred uh, process that we have in this country by these false allegations is certainly unworthy of anyone, but particularly an incumbent president of the United States. You know, you said something that I think is very interesting, that this should be a, a, a bipartisan, um, apolitical issue. And really up until this year, um, absentee ballots had not been a partisan issue. Republicans had it for a long time dominated in some states, uh, the, the early voting, uh, the universe of, of early voting. But now it has become hyperpartisan. It's become very, very polarized. So I wonder whether we have any indication of, of how this is going to play out, because right now, every survey that I'm seeing, including in states like Wisconsin, um, there is a real partisan breakdown where Democrats are far more likely to vote by mail than re- Republicans. So the good news and the bad news would be that has Donald Trump actually succeeded in suppressing some of his own vote? Because I know a lot of Republicans who traditionally voted by mail and by casting doubt on mail in votes. Is it possible that he is going to reduce the Republican use of absentee balloting. Well, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by analysis because I happen to share it. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact is, it's, if you want to preserve the majority that you have in the Senate, Mr. President, uh, and I just wonder if uh, Mitch is just shakes his head in disbelief and uh, mumbling under his breath, why would you discourage Republican voters who historically have voted absentee and maybe those who've got pre-existing conditions, loyal Republicans that just don't want to go to the polls, et cetera, et cetera, uh, from voting and by discrediting absent the absentee balloting process? So it absolutely makes no sense to me. It is counterintuitive and also, in my judgment, counterproductive uh, if he wants to preserve the Senate. And if I'm a challenger uh, over in the House, if you're trying to pick a few few uh, a few votes. I mean, I just, I just kind of shake my head in disbelief why there hasn't been a louder and more sustained uh, pub, public outcry from incumbent elected officials challenging the president's statement that the only way he could lose is if the election's rigged. It is beyond despicable, in my judgment for a statement for the president of the United States to make that observation and conclusion. I mean, it's self-serving, it's narcissist, and it's wrong, Mr. President. The voters will decide, not you. And part of that process has to do with absentee ballots. And that's why Governor Granholm and I, we're not out promoting one side or the other. We just want to make sure that the options are there for people throughout the country. One great example is the Kentucky situation where the secretary of state is elected Republican. uh, The governor is an elected Democrat, and they're working very, very hard to make sure that they get safe and secure in-person balloting and and absentee ballots. It's an apolitical issue. Everybody ought to be joined in the notion that we ought to maximize participation, maximize voter turnout, and let the people decide. Who, are, who takes the oath of office on January 20th, not the president looking into his own personal crystal ball, claiming the future and suggesting that anything but his conclusion would be contrary to the facts. And the facts are, Mr. President, the folks haven't voted and he's taken this notion of delay and there will be delay because of unprecedented use of absentee ballots and suggested there'll be a fraud. Final comment. 
you and I don't know these folks very well. I know some of them, Charlie. You got Republicans and Democrats at the local level who for years and years give up a couple of days a year. It's their contribution to this process of self-government. They're local election officials. They work very hard. They view the vote and their mission as a sacred and important one. I think they're the guardians of democracy. And for this president, frankly, to suggest that they haven't in the past, nor will they in the future, do their job to make sure that every vote that has been properly rendered is properly counted, again, is not only a lack of confidence, but I think a, a bloody insult in the face of their, their service to this country. But again, you don't want me to get going on who served their country and who hasn't. They are guardians of the democracy, and I'm, we should be grateful for their, for, their, for their presence and for their work. So let me ask you a factual question. I don't know whether we, we have all the answers on this. And it's a very practical question, which is the spoilage rate for mail-in votes. I, I saw an account, and I haven't verified it, out of North Carolina, where there was a rather alarmingly high number of ballots that were spoiled because of the failure to either to have a signature on the ballot or to have a witness on the ballot. Do we have some rule of thumb? Are you getting any indication of whether this is going to be a problem? Because this is one of those things that that could have tremendous impact in swing states, especially if you have Democrats disproportionately using the ballots. If you have a 10 percent spoilage rate, that could flip the election. So what are you seeing? What are you hearing about that? Well, Charlie, I think that's a very good point. And as strong an advocate I am for the this, this safe and secure options, there are rules and reg regulations appropriate to the use of the absentee ballot. And these local officials, and there is a process, some of it's electronic, some of it's personal uh, overview, but there are guidelines and rules that in my judgment, basically assure the legitimacy of mm -hmm. the ballot itself. And I have, and I think it is incumbent upon the leaders of both parties, state and local officials, the media itself, just there are rules and regulations around absentee ballot, just like there's rules and regulations around everything else. And we cannot deviate from that. And so I think the challenge is not changing the rules or second guessing the outcomes. The challenge is making sure in the next two months that everybody understands the appropriate way to exercise this civic responsibility. I think it's a privilege to vote, Charlie. I think it's a civic responsibility. That exercise your civic responsibility in a way consistent with very specific guidelines. It's not that difficult. And if there's a lack of knowledge and information, it, it falls on both parties and the leaders of both parties, particularly at the local level, state and local level, to inform the public so they better understand and comprehend what they need to do. Will there be a spoilage rate? There it is possible. There's been that way for a long, long time. But that is far and away different from the kind of massive fraud that the president's talking about. One doesn't exist. The other can be remedied or minimized just with education. 
Governor Tom Ridge, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Tom Ridge is a former two-term governor of Pennsylvania, the very first secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and an outspoken advocate for mail-in voting. His organization is Vote Safe. You can find it online. Governor Ridge, thank you so much for joining me today. Charlie, it's been a great pleasure. Hope we have a chance to continue the conversation either before or after the election, but stay safe, be well to you and your listeners. It's been a pleasure to join you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. There are 53 days to go until the election.